The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we always need to make sure we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that when we sin, we lose fellowship with God, but we do not lose our salvation. The only way to recover fellowship is through confession of sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And at that instant, because Christ has already paid for them, the sin is forgiven, wiped away. The slate is wiped clean. Our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west, and the Lord remembers them no more. So we always take a few moments to, of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then we begin. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you because of who you are and what you have done for us. It is your magnificent grace that provided a perfect solution to the sin problem. It is your grace that provided a solution that was not dependent upon who we are, what we do. It was irrespective of our works, our personalities, our position in society. It was totally dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You provided a salvation for us that... At the instant of salvation, everything that would be necessary for our spiritual life, everything we could possibly need, would be given to us in abundance. Now, Father, as we continue our study to uh, learn all that we have in Christ, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen. It is frequent. I discover that as I am studying for two different classes, or sometimes even on Wednesday night, that what we teach in one class often seems to uh, complement what is taught in another class. But I don't think we've hit a class yet where both hours really focus on the same subject, though we hit that this morning. So if you were here first hour, we're still talking about positional truth, but from a Johannine perspective and not from Paul's perspective. Now we have to go back a little bit and look at uh, what's going on in First John chapter 2, starting in verse... Uh, 18, just to pick up our context a little bit. It's always important to pick up context. You know, 
I was really blessed while I was down in Houston this last time. had an opportunity to speak at four different churches pastored by some of the men who come to uh, WHW, and they were just, what a tremendous support. In fact, there were about five or six black pastors who came to my mother's memorial service, which really meant a lot to me for them to come out. And uh, I got an opportunity. I'd gone down there, had a conference the first week at one church, and then every Sunday I was there, they'd find out I was going to stay. They, they uh, Somebody would call me up and say, well, why don't you come and speak this Sunday at my church? So that kept me busy. Uh, in spite of everything else, at least it kept me in the Word a little bit more. First um, John chapter 2, it's been some time since we've looked at this, down through verse 27. From 1-1 down through verse 27 is the introduction to this epistle. It's a lengthy introduction, and in this introduction, John brings out various different aspects that relate to the theme that he develops in the main body of this, of this epistle. And verses 18 down through down through 27, really address the infant believer. Notice in verse 18 it says children. And that is the Greek word paideia, which is different from technion. Technion was used back in, in uh, verse 12. And technion is what he uses in verse uh, in 2.12, 2.28. And that refers to... Um, uh, Technion refers to them as, in a term of endearment, as his children, spiritual children in the Lord because of his position as their pastor. But Paideia addresses them as spiritually immature, as babes in Christ. And we saw in our study of verses 13 and 14 that he addresses three categories of spiritual growth. Fathers, that is the spiritually mature uh, young men, that is, those who are in the midpoint of their spiritual advance, spiritual adolescence, and then Pideans. So he is addressing issues in these verses from 18 through 27 that relate to the spiritual baby, the new believer, and understanding who and what he has in Jesus Christ. Begin with a warning in verse 18 that, that there would be false teachers that come along. And we read that, studied it in detail, saw that it is the last hour, and that's a term that refers to the church age as a whole, that at any instant Jesus Christ can return, and that is the doctrine of the imminency of Jesus Christ. His coming is imminent, but not necessarily soon. Uh, we may believe, because of things that are happening in the Middle East, because of this war on terrorism, that that just indicates that it is soon. But the doctrine in the Scripture is that it is imminent. That means it can come at any time. No prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture. And then Paul says, I mean, John says, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, that is a reference to the future uh, leader of the Western uh, Alliance, Western Europe, the revived Roman Empire, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. And we made the point that in every generation there are those who arise as substitute Christ. Those who seek to be worshipped in place of Christ originate new religions, whether we're talking about Islam, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, or any of the other ex-acts and spasms that have come along claiming to be the source of absolute truth. In every generation, because Satan 
has no more knowledge than you or I do about when Jesus Christ is going to return. He has to have his, his system and his man in place just in case the rapture occurs. So we heard that Antichrist is coming. That's still future. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen, and that is the trend during the church age. One of the historical trends is there will be these false teachers. And from this we know that it is the last hour. This is a characteristic of the church age. Then we looked at verse 19. They went out from us. That is, these antichrists went out from us. And we saw that the us there does not refer generically or generally to all Christians, but is a reference uh, as it has been, as this first person plural pronoun has been since the first verse of the first chapter, is a reference to the apostolic body. Uh, in Acts, we're told that there was the church in Jerusalem, but there were those who went out from amongst that church. They had been associated with the apostles, and they seemed to go along with apostolic truth and apostolic doctrine, but it was not until they left that people began to realize that they held some different positions. So when it says they went out from us, that is, they went out from among the uh, apostles in Jerusalem, but they were not really of us. Now, often you will find somebody who comes along and says that this is a reference to salvation. They were not really of us. That is, they weren't really saved. But that interpretation is based on a meaning for us that is generic. If us refers to the apostolic community, not Christians in general, as it has from the very beginning, you trace the first person plural through this this epistle. It always refers to the apostolic community primarily, and only by in a secondary application sense does it refer to believers at large. So when he says they were not really of us, he's not saying they were not really of us believers, but they were not really in accord with us, in agreement with we apostles, doctrinally. He says, for if they had been of us, that is, if they had been in agreement with we apostles, doctrinally, they would have remained with us. But they went out, that is, they left Jerusalem, in order that it might be shown or demonstrated that they are not all uh, of us. So we, had, we took some time to, to go through that and to exegete that and show that this is not talking about salvation or their saved status. It is talking about their doctrinal lack of agreement with apostolic truth. And then we come to verse 20. And in verse 20, the, uh, John says, But you, that is, but in contrast, but you have an anointing. That is, or excuse me, it is not a, it's translated but, but it is a chi in the Greek, which is a, con, a coordinating conjunction. It is not a contrastive conjunction. Although chi can have a contrastive sense, it's not its usual meaning. It should be translated, and you have. He is adding something to his previous statement. He is not making a contrast between um, these believers. I mean, the way it's translated in New American Standard, it makes it seem as if those in verse 20 are believers in contrast to unbelievers in verse 19. But you see, that was an interpretive translation, and that is wrong. It is, and indicating something in addition. He is going to say something in addition, talking about these children. And you have an anointing 
from the Holy One. Now, the word one is not in the original. All we have in the original is the genitive of hagias, from the, the Holy One, or the, the Holy. And it is normally taken to refer to the Holy Spirit, but the term holy does not, is not accompanied by spirit, and it probably refers to God the Father. This is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but is a reference to God the Father and what we receive at the instant of salvation. John says, but you have an anointing from the Holy, and you know all things. So knowledge is something, or potential knowledge, is something that is related to this concept of anointing. So before we get any further, we need to look at the doctrine of anointing. Now this is a subject, a word that has a lot of religious baggage that goes with it. You'll hear in some circles people talking about, oh, that person has such an anointing from the Lord. You know, maybe they sang well, or maybe they taught well that day, or they uh, did something that impressed somebody else. So they uh, expresses such an anointing. But that's not a biblical use of the word. And it just shows another way in which people never really take the time to study out what the Scriptures say about a particular subject. So we have to take that time today to uh, flesh out the word anointing. Now, the problem is that we run into is in the New Testament, this concept as it relates to the believer is only expressed in this particular chapter of First John. First John 2.20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And then down in... Uh, in verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but has, his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So, because it is not taught in too many places or used in too many places, we have to take some time to look at the background of anointing in the Old Testament in order to better understand what John is talking about. So, Old Testament background. There are, Old Testament background, two types of anointing in the Old Testament. There is the common anointing, and secondly, there is ceremonial or ritual anointing. There is the everyday anointing. For example, uh, soldiers would anoint their shields with oil. They had leather shields, and so they would rub them down with oil. That's what anoint means. Mashiach means to rub or to pour oil on something. It's the same word where, where we get our word Messiah. It means the anointed one. And they would rub oil on the leather, leather to keep it from drying out and cracking. So that's one form of anointing. That's the, what I mean by common anointing. And ceremonial or ritual anointing is that anointing which has to do with the observance of ritual under the Mosaic law. Point number two, common anointing included the use of olive oil for medicinal, preservative, and cosmetic reasons. Remember, we are dealing with a climate in the Middle East that is extremely dry, like Tucson or Phoenix, Arizona areas that are very dry and hard on the skin. So olive oil was used for cosmetic purposes, both in the hair and on the skin, in order to keep it from drying out. 
Uh, it was used to protect skin. It was applied after a bath. That's used in uh, referenced in Ruth chapter three, verse three, and Ezekiel sixteen nine. It was used for a balm to put on wounds, uh, according to Isaiah one verse six. Uh, corpses were also anointed with oil, Luke twenty three, fifty six, and as I mentioned earlier, warriors would anoint their shields with oil, Second Samuel one twenty one. And if you were to have a, a special guest in your home for dinner, then when he came in the the house, you would anoint his head with perfumed oils as a sign of respect, and that is seen in Luke chapter seven. Verses, uh, uh, verse 46. Luke chapter 7, verse 46. So that was common anointing, something people did every, every day. Now, the anointing, the medicinal anointing was not for the healing of what we might call constitutional diseases, such as uh, cancer, or leukemia, or blindness, or something like that. You know, there's always that confusion when you get to that passage in James 5. I don't have time to be distracted by it, but where it talks about calling together the elders for prayer and anointing their head with oil, that was the use. That's not creo there, which is uh, the word creo, chrismos, the word for anointing here. Christos is the word for Christ. Uh, that word group has to do with the, more the ritual or religious anointing. Uh, the ritual anointing is a picture of the Holy Spirit or, or the Holy One anointing us. But in that passage in James 5, it's a lepho, which has to do with the common anointing. And Jesus had said earlier in the Gospels, uh, when he was t- uh, challenging the Pharisees, he said, don't, when you go out and you're, you're fasting, don't, uh, don't look like you're suffering. Don't uh, dress poorly and don't uh, go out unbathed and disheveled, but anoint yourself with oil. So it was a sign of um, a person who was deeply depressed or discouraged, going through some kind of personal struggle. They would not anoint themselves. For us, it would be the fact that they probably wouldn't shave. They're depressed. They're, they're not going to shave. They're not going to shower. They're not going to use deodorant. And um, so what James is saying there is that uh, in that culture is go take a shower and a bath, get cleaned up, put on a little aftershave and deodorant, and that will start changing your attitude when you're down and discouraged. Because the word for uh, healing there isn't a physical, I mean, for sickness there isn't a physical sickness. It's uh, a term for, uh, the term asthenase in the Greek, which is for uh, being spiritually weak. It can be physically sick, but it, there it means just someone who is going through a spiritual struggle and is uh, failing at the opportunity to trust the Lord. Anyway, I don't want to get distracted by that, but that's a common anointing there. That's not doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual life. So point number three is a ceremonial anointing occurred in the Old Testament at the initiation of a person's ministry or office. It occurs one time only at the, and I'm going to emphasize that again and again, it occurred one time only at the initiation of a person's ministry or office. As such, it symbolized being set apart for the service of God. Now, that ought to immediately cause those of you who are thinking, who were here in the first hour and thinking about it, that that first thing that comes to your mind is positional truth, because that's when we're set apart for positional sanctification. So that's the idea here, is that it's a picture of positional sanctification. Not only persons, but also objects were anointed, 
uh, Exodus 30, verses 22 to 33, and 40, 10 through 11 talks about the anointing of the, uh, of the labor, the anointing of the bronze altar, and various other uh, articles of furniture in the tabernacle. Priests were also anointed, but only when they are initially installed in office. Uh, Exodus 28, verses 40 to 42, and 29, 1 through 46. And then prophets were anointed. There's, you've got to compare First Chronicles 19.16 and Isaiah 61.1. And kings were also anointed, First Samuel 10.1 and 16.13. I want to take some time uh, to look at some of these. Point number three, let's deal with the significance of anointing. The significance of anointing is connected to being set apart to the service of God at the beginning of ministry. It is connected to being set apart to the service of God at the beginning of ministry. And as such, that is analogous to our positional sanctification. For example, in Exodus 29:21, there we read, God is speaking, giving instruction to Moses regarding the uh, uh, inauguration of the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Then you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. So he and his garments shall be consecrated. Now, the word there for consecrated is the Hebrew cow perfect of kadash, which is the word for holy. Holiness is comparable to the hagias word group in, in Greek, and it has to do with sanctification, holiness, being... It has to do with holiness and sanctification being set apart unto God. It is at this point that Aaron and his sons are being ordained or initiated into the priesthood. Other passages that use this same terminology, Exodus 40, verse 9, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and shall consecrate it and all its furnishings, and it shall be Holy, it shall be kadash. So anointing is related to this concept of being set apart positionally and what we would call positional sanctification in the New Testament. Verse, uh, verse 10 goes on to say, And you shall anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, and the altar shall be most holy. Verse 11, And you shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. And you, verse 13, you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. So what we see here to draw a conclusion is that anointing only occurred one time. It is not repeated. You don't come back every time you set the temple, tabernacle up again and anoint these things again. You don't come in and every year on the Day of Atonement or some other special day re-anoint Aaron and his priesthood. It happens one time. And so, therefore, what we can infer from this is that people who, who use this word so loosely that so-and-so had a great anointing today, you should have heard him sing or preach or whatever he did, that that totally goes against the biblical examples of, one time, of a one-time event that occurs at the inception of a ministry and having to do with being set apart to serve. It doesn't indicate at any time any kind of infusion of power. 
Let's see, we live in an age when people really don't care what the Bible says. They just want to go with some sort of cultural uh, Christianity that sounds good and makes them feel good. And if we want to be uh, biblical about what we believe, we have to take the time to study how words are used. Uh, fifth point, kings were also anointed. Not only were priests anointed, but kings were also anointed. It occurred once. It was never repeated. And it signified their appointment to kingship. Now, David is anointed twice. He's anointed initially by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And then the tribes, when they actually make him king, remember there was about a 20-year difference. When the, when the tribes recognized him as king, when he took the throne, they anointed him again. But both times it indicates his appointment and his beginning the beginning point of his ministry. Saul was anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16. Uh, God is speaking to Samuel here and says, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And that's a reference to King Saul, the first uh, uh, God-anointed, God-appointed uh, king over Israel in the Old Testament. Then this is carried out in 1 Samuel chapter 10, 1, where Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? 1 Samuel 16, 12, and 13 talks about David. So uh, Samuel has come to the house of Jesse, and it's going to be one of Jesse's sons that's going to be anointed, but God didn't tell him which one, and so uh, the first one that... that uh, uh, Samuel uh, started off with the other brothers, and it wasn't any of them, so they sent and brought him in, that is David. He was out with the sheep. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. That was where he lived at the time. Then we have another example in 1 Kings one thirty four, where Zadok is anointing uh, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint Solomon as king over Israel. And then again in uh, 1 Kings 19.16, we have the only clear mention of the anointing of a prophet. When Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. That was an instruction to Elijah. Uh, also, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are mentioned as anointed ones if you compare Psalm 105.15 with Genesis 20, verse 7. So those who had specific tasks in relationship to the spiritual life of Israel, in relationship to leadership, were anointed. That was a divine appointment and it symbolized the fact that they were set apart to the service of God from the inception of their ministry, and it only occurred one time. Point number six, what exactly was anointing? It was the physical act of pouring oil on the object or on the head of the person. Sometimes it involved rubbing it into an object. It was a ritual act that was designed to portray a spiritual reality. So that in the New Testament, what we have, 
left in, by the time we get to 1 John 3 is the spiritual reality that it portrayed. As such, point number seven, as such ceremonial anointing symbolized being set apart for divine service and the appointment to a specific role. It is it symbolizes being set apart for divine service and the appointment to a specific role. So when we come to apply that to the believer, this takes us away from post-salvation, filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, or the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, to what would happen only one time, a non-repeated action, which occurs at the beginning of the spiritual life, something that occurs at the instant of salvation. And point number eight, again, just for emphasis, anointing only occurs once at the beginning of ministry. And so at the point of salvation, every believer enters into full-time Christian ministry. Every single believer is a full-time Christian in full-time Christian service. It may not be professional service, but every believer is in full-time Christian ministry from the point of salvation because God has given each of us spiritual gifts and these spiritual gifts are designed to be used for Him. We are, to be, we are set apart by our sanctification to serve in some kind of ministry related to that spiritual gift, whether it's, whether it's teaching or whether it's giving, whether it's serving in a local church, administration, whatever it might be. That comes at the beginning. So, let's try to work out some applications here. Point number nine, the idea of initiation, that which occurs at the beginning of of uh, salvation reminds us of Paul's doctrine of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. That is our initiation into the body of Christ, and we're studying that in the first hour. So the idea of initiation reminds us of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as well as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that which we get at the beginning of, of our Christian life, which is part of that sanctification package. So these two... And then we add in the next factor, which is that these two facets of the Holy Spirit's ministry to the church-age believer also relate to our positional sanctification. The case I'm building is that anointing relates to positional truth. It relates to what happens at the inception of our Christian life at salvation. Point number 10. In the New Testament, the term charisma, or the term charisma is only used in 1 John. It's only used here in 1 John, and so we have to gain its meaning from Old Testament background. And in 1 John, it seems to have the idea not simply of our positional relationship only, but it's tied to the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that tells us something, that because of our positional our position in Christ, we are given the potential of understanding the Scriptures. It doesn't mean that we automatically understand it, but with that anointing, with that package that we get at salvation, which John's going to just summarize all this. He's not going to talk about, like Paul, he's not going to break it down into baptism and dwelling and filling and all that. He's going to take the whole, every, the whole package that we get positionally at salvation and say, this gives us the ability to understand everything that God has for us in His Word. That doesn't mean that we're just going to open the Bible and know it instantly because... You know, some people will abuse the next couple of verses and say, well, you know, we don't really need a teacher. Then why did God give the gift of pastor, teacher, and teacher if you don't need a teacher? So you need a teacher, but you were also taught by God the Holy Spirit. So verse 10 indicates that this is a positional relationship. He's talking about our potential 
of understanding all of the Scriptures and everything that God has for us to learn in the Scriptures because of what we get at the instant of salvation. Point number 11 is that this term primarily relates to the ministry of Jesus Christ during the Incarnation. Outside of this passage, it relates to Jesus Christ's appointment in terms of his Messianic ministry. We have passages such as Luke 4.18, where Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. See, this is his appointment as Messiah. It's not that, that God came along and gave him a special gift to preach to the poor, but that this was part of his appointment. It's a prophecy of Isaiah 61, 1, and this is fulfilled to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captive. See, this is what's called, a, this parallelism here indicates that anointing and being sent are comparable concepts. It has to do with the designation of his mission as Messiah. Another passage is Acts 4.27 where we read, For truly this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint. That is the appointment by God of Jesus Christ in his ministry. And then it's used again in Acts 10.38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And that was at the inception of his ministry. Jesus Christ performed all of his miracles uh, or many of his miracles, not all of them, because some of them had to come from his own deity because he was demonstrating his deity. But many of his miracles were performed by means of the Holy Spirit. Okay, point number 12. As such, this wraps it up for a conclusion. As such, anointing for John represents God's gift of the Holy Spirit at salvation. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, which identifies the believer positionally with Christ and brings with it everything the believer needs for the spiritual life. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with its potential for filling through teaching. It occurs only once and is the same for every believer. So some people don't get more of an anointing than others. Now, there are differences in different measures of spiritual gifts, but that's something different. The, the anointing is the same for every believer and relates to our understanding of Scripture. This is what Jesus had taught in uh, John 14 and in John 16. Let me. This is our eternal reality. Our anoint, all of this, everything in the left circle relates to anointing. We're in Christ. The placement in Christ and everything we get at that point is part of this anointing package where we're reconciled, we're redeemed, we're regenerated, we're adopted into the royal family, we are a new creature in Christ, we are freed from the domination of the sin nature, we have new life in Christ, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All that's our positional reality. That's what we get. That's our anointing. And that is distinct from the spiritual life which has to do with the filling by the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit. Now, because of our position our, and what we get at salvation, we have the potential to understand all the Scriptures. John 14:26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things. That is, He will help you to understand everything that has been revealed. God didn't... You know, every now and then you run into somebody who thinks that the Scriptures are just too obscure, too difficult to understand. They're not. The reason they're difficult for some people is because they set up their own roadblocks. God has given us the ability to understand everything. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, and that doesn't mean you're going to understand it just by opening the Bible and reading it. It takes years of study. There are passages in the Scriptures that I still scratch my head over, but as you take the time to really dig into them and to study them, then God the Holy Spirit will make their meaning clear to us. Remember the principle, God did not communicate in order to uh, cloud the issue. God is communicating in His Word in order to clearly reveal something. He communicated to be understood. Now, that's a crucial point, because a lot of people want to handle the Bible as if it's something God communicated to keep truth hidden. But God communicated in order to make truth clear. Now, there are situations, for example, in the parables, when Jesus is specifically teaching in a way that is going to cloud the issue and obfuscate the issue for the unbeliever. But then to the, believer, to the, de- uh, to the uh, disciples, he took them aside afterwards and explained the meaning of the symbols in the parables. And that's included for us in the Scriptures, so that the Scriptures are written to be understood. And sometimes it just takes time. Sometimes it's more difficult. Some things are more difficult than others. Even Peter said of Paul's writing that there are many things there that are difficult to be understood. But they can be understood, and God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can understand them. John 16:13 we read, "But when He, the Spirit of Truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative." But whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come. So the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture and is the agent of revelation and inspiration, he is the one who also has the responsibility of helping us to understand his word. But to understand it means not simply that we just sit there and hear it and say, well, that makes sense to me, I believe it. Uh, You can't ride along on the coattails of somebody else's understanding. Just because you can regurgitate my words back to me, and just because you have some uh, uh, vague familiarity with uh, technical theological verbiage, doesn't mean you understand the concept. I mean, just think about it. You had a vague technical understanding of biological terminology or chemical terminology or mathematical terminology when you bluff your way through those, uh, those tests in high school. And uh, you no more understood the material than, than uh, I understand calculus. But you managed to uh, fake it because you had uh, picked up enough of the verbiage to, to make it look like you understood it, and your teacher was gracious to you. So that happens a lot of times. You'll hear Christians talking about something, and I say, you know, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They've got all the verbiage there, but, but they really don't understand it. And it takes time, it takes study, it takes consistent exposure sometimes before we understand anything, many of these doctrines of Scripture. Now let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We studied this, uh, you studied this to some degree on one of the tapes from one of the conferences I had when I was in Houston that I sent back to help cover things while I was gone. 
This is one of the great passages on Revelation. Starting in verse 9 we read, But just as it is written, now this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, that is, that is human knowledge, eyesight and and the hearing of the ear, sense, our data, our information learned through sense perception. That's what we call empiricism. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man. That is the thinking of man. That refers to the system of knowledge known as rationalism. So what God prepares for those who love him is something that goes beyond that which is discernible through human reason alone, and the reason I say that is because it's not irrational. It is because it's not human reason alone or human empiricism alone. But we use reason. We use our eyes to read the Scripture. We use our ears to hear doctrine being taught. But we, the knowledge goes beyond something that, that we can learn simply on the basis of empiricism or rationalism alone. Now, it's t- the things in verse 9 refers to the doctrines that are revealed in the Scriptures. We have to understand that in order to follow the chain of Paul's thinking in these verses. It says, For to us, that is, us believers, it could be us apostles more restrictively, for to us God revealed them, that is, the doctrines that eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Through the Spirit, that is, the Spirit is the agent of revelation. Now, because that Isaiah, uh, that that Verse 9 is a quote from the Old Testament passage. Whatever conclusions we reach when we study this have to be conclusions that would, that would relate to an Old Testament saint as well as a New Testament saint. Now, what's the main difference between an Old Testament believer and a New Testament believer? Well, there are several key differences, but one of the most important is that the Old Testament believer did not possess the Holy Spirit. He was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit or filled by the Holy Spirit. He was not baptized by the Holy Spirit. There is no individual ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the Old Testament believer. There is in the New Testament. So whatever is said here cannot be something that is related to understanding uh, uh, that's given through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the church-age believer. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. God revealed to us the writers of Scripture... Through the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, and there is still capital S, even the depths of God. Verse 11, he gives an illustration. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man? And there we have the same word pneuma, and here it's used in its most generic sense about the immaterial personality of the man. Who knows the thoughts of a man except his own nature? Which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And there we have pneuma plus the genitive of theu, pneuma theu, pneuma tu theu, which is the Spirit of God. Now, this is really important because Paul is going to do this. He's going to come along with about, well, where did my, there we go. Paul is going to come along and he's going to say this. He's going to use this phrase, pneuma to theu. Then the next time he mentions the Holy Spirit, he's going to say pneuma to theu. Then he's going to say pneuma ek to 
Tetheo. And then he's going to say Numa to Tetheo. Now, remember when you had to take an SAT exam or one of those IQ exams or scholastic exams when you were in school, and it was like, look at the list and what doesn't belong. Basic observation. Little did you know that this would come back and be important in studying the Bible. Now, what doesn't belong in that list? Well, it's this third one. See, there's something different here. There's a preposition there. Now, we ought to ask, if we're thinking and interacting with what we're reading, why is there a preposition there and not anywhere else? Obviously, Paul is going to say something different here, and that whereas 1, 2, and 4 talk about the Spirit of God, meaning the Holy Spirit, in this passage, in this phrase, it is the Spirit that is from the source of God. That's the emphasis of the preposition ek. And so in this case, it is not talking about the Holy Spirit, but it is talking about something that is given by God, which we call the human spirit, that which we receive, that immaterial part of our nature that we receive at regeneration when we are born again. So in verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit to ectutheu, the, the spirit who is from God. Now if you look in your Bible... Anybody here have a Bible that doesn't tra- capitalize S there? See, they all, make a, they all make an interpretive decision there, and they capitalize the S. But see, in the original Greek manuscripts, there are no capitalizations. Everything is either uppercase in an uncial, or it's all lowercase in a minuscule. But there are, there's no punctuation, there's no capitalization like we have, so you have, to, you have to make that decision based on grammar. And that's why Paul uses a distinction here. So this should be a lowercase s, the spirit, that is the human spirit, which is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. See, once again, we have to know the things. And what are the things? These are the things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. This is Scripture. This is what God has revealed to us, the, the revelation of Scripture. So what we're told is at the instant of regeneration, God gives us a capacity, which we call the human spirit, so that which is born anew at that point, to understand truth. Now, it says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit, that is the human spirit, which comes from the source of God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. And that the things freely given is the Scriptures. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. That it, Here we're tying in something new. It's taught by the Spirit, and this is correctly uh, translated with a capital S. So the Holy Spirit then teaches and communicates doctrine, and it is understood through our human spirit. And then we read, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words, taking spiritual concepts and categorizing them and classifying them uh, in terms of terminology and various doctrines. And then Paul draws a contrast in verse 14. But a natural man, and the word here for natural is the Greek word psukikos. P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S from the Greek word suke, 
meaning soul. So this is the soulish person, a natural man or a soulish person, that is one who, that does not possess this human spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, what are the things again? That's revelation, the things which eyes not seen and ears not heard. The soulish man, the unbeliever, has, is spiritually brain dead. The only thing he can really truly grasp as an unbeliever is the gospel, because at the point of gospel hearing, when the evangelist or pastor uh, explains the gospel, then God the Holy Spirit is going to substitute for that human spirit. That's John chapter 16, 4 through 7. The Holy Spirit is going to substitute for that human spirit in order to make the gospel clear. Now, every unbeliever has a thousand and one other questions about the Bible, but they're not going to be able to understand them or perceive their answers uh, until they're regenerated. They just don't have the full capacity for it. They'll understand some things, but only at a, at a superficial level. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And there we have the word pneumatikos, which indicates that they are appraised through this human spirit that we mentioned earlier. So at the point of salvation in the church age, part of our package, we have regeneration where we are given the human spirit and then we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And as a function of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have the potential of being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the correct translation of Ephesians 5.18, to be filled by means of the Spirit. And you understand that you're filled with doctrine by comparing Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16. See, we've covered that so much, I just don't have time to go back and I don't want to exegete all those passages again. But this whole package we get at the instant of salvation. Now, we can't lose the human spirit. We can't lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we can lose the filling of the, of the Holy Spirit when we sin. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and then we're out of fellowship. But the rest is all part of the salvation package, and that's what we get with our uh, positional truth, our positional sanctification, and it is that whole package that John is referring to as the anointing. It is everything we need that God gives us at the instant of salvation related to the uh, being able to live the spiritual life. Okay, let's go back and look at our passage in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 21, John says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. They have been taught the truth by John when he was present, when he was their pastor, and they have uh, learned the truth through the uh, operation of the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Because you, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And the lie, of course, that he's referring to is that of the false teachers, that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. Verse 22, Who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? See, that's your basic, for John, that is your foundational um, message. That is your foundational uh, gospel message that um, 
Jesus is the Messiah. For example, First uh, John five one he says, "Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him." And then in John twenty thirty and thirty one we read, "Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples." which are not written in this book, but these, that is, these signs, the referent is back to verse 30, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is what? The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So in verse 22, John is saying that the liar is the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, that is, that He has come uh, in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son, the one who denies the Trinity, and the one who denies that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now this is going to get into some some important uh, comparison with uh, things that John says in the Gospel. And my voice is now about shot, so we're going to wait and see the connections between denying the Son and having the Father when we come back next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to uh, study your Word today and to focus on, especially on the uh, key issue in the Gospel, and that is that you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who was fully God, undiminished deity, and was united with humanity perfect humanity, so that he was born without sin, which quali- and he lived a life without sin, which qualified him to go to the cross as a substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that you would, that if anyone here this morning is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that you would make this perspicuous to them, that all they need to do to be saved is put their faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of ritual or religious activity. It is a matter of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in our salvation to help us to understand your word. And we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make this real in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.